0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: We've had violence, gunshots. A few years ago, we had a kidnapping. A person beat up with a pipe last year. It's just the Wild West, and uh, anyone with a net and a light on their head and a bucket can go catch these things. These things
2: are baby eels worth a lot of money? I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, inside the shocking battle over the tiny creatures. It's so bad, the federal government is ready to shut down the fishery. Plus...
3: The picture is very dire. People are in a very, very desperate situation, and, and they're doing desperate things to survive.
2: It's becoming harder and harder to get supplies through to Gaza. Now, Canada is looking at dropping in aid by air. The minister in charge joins us from the Middle East. But first, two years of war. Ukraine's response to some Canadians questioning spending on the conflict.
4: The House is now in session. I honestly don't know exactly what we've been doing, but I'm more on the side of doing more. Am I against Putin having more power? Absolutely.
0: I don't. I think that we've actually lived up to the promises that we've made. I think that we talk a good game, but then we don't deliver. Basically, our Ministry of Defence is ill-equipped to really look after themselves, let alone support potential allies like Ukraine, and yet Ukraine
5: desperately, desperately needs the support. I mean, it's too much. (laughs) Too much of help. Other countries should help as well.
4: I think it's uh,
0: enough. But it's important because if uh, Ukraine goes down, Putin's going to invade everything else, all these other countries. So I'm all for it. I don't like the Trudeau government, but they're doing the right thing.
2: On the streets of Calgary, lots of support for Ukraine. And polls show most people across the country also want to see Canada's help continue. Though there is some concern about whether support could be softening. Today marks two years since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine and ten years since it occupied and annexed Crimea. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed or wounded in the struggle, and there is no clear end in sight. So, what more can Canada do? And should Ukraine worry about whether Canada's attention is wavering? Yulia Kovaliv is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. I spoke to her on Friday. Ambassador, thank you very much for making time. Thank you for having me today. I have heard some people say that the human story of Ukraine is not being told as much these days. So I'd like to start by asking you, when you think back to two years ago, when the full scale
4: invasion began, what is it that stands out the most for you? Personally, for me, the most standing is the, the message I got from a friend of mine, early in the morning, it was around 5 a.m. in the morning, we woke up hearing uh, explosions near us, Uh, but because it was in the middle of the night, we were trying to understand what is happening, and the message I got was just two words, the word started, and that I think still strikes and stands with me for these two years, because that's something that changed the life of each of us Ukrainians. And everything what we are doing for these two years and 10 years, actually, it's, it's everything linked to these few words, the war started. The war has started. A- a-
2: and you have children, as I understand it. How have you tried to help them make sense of what's happened over the last two years?
4: I think um, my children are not different from all of the other children in Ukraine, they really grow up since February 24th. So they all became much older with that particular moment when the war started, because they, we all face the harsh reality, the tragedy of the war. And of course, children feel it. I have a daughter and a lot of her friends uh, with their parents moved back in 2014 from Donetsk, from Lugansk, the um, Ukrainian cities that back then, 10 years ago, had been occupied by Russia. And still what stands with me, the conversation was two young girls. They were at that time 11. It was a few weeks uh, before the war started. And uh, there was a lot of press coverage. There were a lot of Uh, fear what's happening next. And it still stands with me the emotions that these two young girls shared with me. They said, you know, we already once were living everything what we had in our life, our homes, our friends, our beloved ones, and we're running under the shelling to find a safer place. So that's how we all moved to cave. And we don't want to feel it again. We don't want to live through it again. The,
2: the children were displaced after the first invasion 10 years ago, and then they were displaced again.
4: Yes. All of these children were a second time, fleeing the war under the shelling. And I think what what's our children is going through, that is something what will stay with them through all of their lives.
2: You talk so powerfully about the impact of the people, the impact of all of us on the people of Ukraine. Outside of Ukraine, though, in the last two years, there have been signs of growing exhaustion with this, certainly when we look at the United States and the political debate there about support. In Canada, perhaps some warning signs as well. At what point do you begin to worry about Canadians' enthusiasm for helping Ukraine?
4: I'm very optimistic and positive. And uh, I think what gives me this optimism and what gives me the, the belief of the standing support of Ukraine is two things. First is that we have a lot in common between Ukrainians and Canadians, and this is the values. We want all to live in a democratic country. We all want to live in a secure country. We all value the rules. And that's how we want to live. We want to live in the world that is ruled by international law. And we don't want to live in the world full of house and with the crazy dictators that can ignore the sovereign borders of the countries. That's, I think, we have in common. The second thing is there is a special bond between our countries. And this special bond is has very deep historical ties. And this bond is built on on the people. For this almost two years being in Canada, I traveled a lot, visiting almost every province in Canada. And everywhere, I met a lot of people who have their friends, who have their relatives, who have their grandmothers, grandfathers, neighbors, who came 100 years ago, 80 years ago, 40 years ago from Ukraine. Ukrainian community has supported the diversity and multiculturalism in Canada. And I think deep understanding Ukrainian people, having them among their colleagues, among their neighbors, I think this will support and uh, will not allow to decrease the support of Ukraine.
2: Let me ask you, the, the Conservatives did not support the vote updating the free trade deal with Ukraine because of a reference to carbon taxes. Are you concerned about the Conservative Party's support for Ukraine?
4: I think that, you know, in a democracy, there are the policies that the parties can argue, and that's, uh, that's part of the democratic process. And uh, I'm optimistic uh, for the uh, support of Ukraine across all the parties, across all the people in Canada. And I would like to say that it's very important that this support stays Because we all, for the sake of our own security and for the security of Canada, because Russia is also Canadian neighbor in the Arctic, and I think it's in the interest for all of us that Ukraine will win the war and Russia will learn their lesson that a Russian dictator cannot just redraw the sovereign borders of the territories and the countries they need to respect sovereignty. They need to respect independence of the other countries. They need to respect their sovereign borders. And they need also to be punished for all of the war crimes they committed.
2: Canada has reportedly sent a draft deal on security assurances to Ukraine, that the promise of military support and, and training for Ukraine going forward. Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie has said a deal could be reached soon. How close are the two countries to a deal on this?
4: The discussions among the negotiation teams uh, were on the track. And uh, the work is in progress. And I think, you know, at uh, such important things, it's better to comment on the results. And uh, I think the both of the teams are working in a cooperative manner on that.
2: In closing, we just saw a loss for Ukraine in the fall of Avdivka, the Russian army is rebuilding more rapidly than expected. What is the best hope for Ukraine right now in this conflict?
4: Look, we need also to understand what was happening in Avdiivka and why it was happening. The reality is that uh, at some, some days in some uh, parts of the front line, Russia was succeeding in artillery 1 to 10 So Russia was able to shell 10 times while our troops were able to shell one time. This means that now it is in the hands of both us in Ukraine, but Canada and other our partners to rapidly both deliver those weapons that have been promised to Ukraine, but also to provide us artillery, air defense, armored vehicles. And that is the way how we can jointly win this war. So we are doing our job on the front line. And we need your support, the support from Canada, the support of all NATO member countries to help us to defeat Russia. Ambassador,
2: thank you for your time today. Thank you. Yulia Kovalev is Ukraine's ambassador to Canada. Aid groups in Gaza are warning of a catastrophic situation. As of last Tuesday, the World Food Program has paused its aid deliveries in the north. Here's Matthew Hollingsworth, WFP's Palestine Country Director, describing what it's like for people there now.
3: People are missing meals, uh, multiple meals, and they have been doing so over an extended period two, three, four days at a time with nothing to eat. The community there was living off. Um, bread that was being made from ground milled chaff, which is essentially animal feed, to make a form of bread. And they ran out of that some weeks ago. So the situation is absolutely horrific.
2: Minister of International Development Ahmed Hussein was at the RAFA border earlier this week. I reached him in Jordan on Thursday to talk about what more Canada can do to help. Minister, welcome back to the House.
3: Thank you so much.
2: There are warnings of chaos, the breakdown of social order, as we just heard, the risk of famine. What did you learn about the scale of the need when you visited the RAFA border?
3: I learned firsthand from, uh, I interacted with uh, and, and spoke to a number of senior officials who had crossed over from Gaza to give me updates on the situation on the ground. And the, the information paints a really, really dire picture of what's really happening Families and individuals are going without food for days there's very little food uh, getting through. There is hardly enough uh, hygienic products as well as you know shelter material and blankets and and things like that that are getting through medicines and so on. The picture is very dire. People are in a very very desperate situation and and they're doing desperate things to survive, such as resorting to eating uh, sort of bread made out of animal feed. And even that has run run out, Uh, they've run out of that in Northern Gaza. And, uh, you know, the scale is is bad overall, but in Northern Gaza, it's even worse. And that's that's what I've learned. I've also learned while there, uh, both in Egypt and in Jordan, about the sheer volume of international humanitarian assistance, supplies of food, water, Medicine and other essential supplies like blankets and uh, shelter materials stuck in these distribution points, and not enough aid is actually getting through that. So, there is a big disproportionate difference between the amount of aid that is pre positioned in the region, especially in in Jordan and, and, and more so in Egypt, and the very little that's going in, plus the huge demand and the desperation on the other side in Gaza.
2: So Canada did increase its funding, uh, $16 million to the World Food Programme, at the same time that you froze funding to UNRWA, and we will talk about UNRWA in a minute, but I want to stay with this situation right now. If the World Food Programme um, is pausing its delivery of aid to northern Gaza, citing the security situation, the breakdown of social order, is there anything... The Canadian government can do at this point to help these people who are on absolutely, the brink of and we're
3: and that's precisely one of the reasons that I'm in the region, because we're advocating for more access. We're advocating for more volumes of aid to go in through the existing ports of entry, but actually to also open up more more ports of entry uh, for international humanitarian aid, and we've been doing that.
2: Any signs of success?
3: uh Well, so in addition to that, we're also looking at the possibility and the feasibility of actually making airdrops into Gaza. This is something that uh, the uh, Dutch government as well as the, uh, the British government and others have done in collaboration with the uh, Jordanian Air Force. It's something that we're seriously considering and looking at the feasibility of doing that and what it would take to do that because we have to do everything that we can to avert mass starvation in northern Gaza and beyond.
2: Okay, I'd like to talk about UNRWA for a minute now. Obviously, one of the primary agencies helping Palestinians. Uh, You paused that funding, Canada did, as other countries have as well, because of allegations that some staff were involved in the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7th. I'd like to understand, is it possible that the Canadian government will permanently end funding to UNRWA?
3: I don't want to prejudge the results of an independent investigation into those very serious and disturbing allegations. But let me start by saying that the reason we implemented a temporary pause on any additional funding to UNRWA is because we value uh, the work of UNRWA. We value the fact that this UN agency has a long history of providing crucial services to Palestinians in Gaza, the West Bank, and in Lebanon, Jordan, and Syria. We value their networks, we value their presence, we value the the fact that they provide these really important services, education, health, and so on. We have partnered with UNRWA on the Gaza response, but these allegations have to be dealt with, and what we are saying is, while we implement this temporary pause on additional funding, the UN family has to conduct a transparent independent, comprehensive investigation to deal with these allegations. And and they're doing exactly that. They've assured us that they're doing exactly that. And we will obviously, you know, wait for for the results of that investigation with the hope that a comprehensive, transparent investigation will return with a result that will provide us hopefully with the confidence to continue to work with UNRWA in the future.
2: This question of the temporary pause, as you put it, to UNRWA funding, it's animating the political conversation in this country. And as we approach Ramadan, the National Council of Canadian Muslims and a number of prominent mosques have signed an open letter saying that members of parliament are not welcome in mosques unless they call for an immediate ceasefire in Gaza, they demand the restoration of funding to UNRWA, and condemn what they describe, this group describes as Israel's war crimes. What does this tell you about how much your government's policies on this conflict have alienated a large swath of voters?
3: Well, look, this is uh, obviously a reflection of, of the frustrations that people have with respect to the conflict. And when you look at the loss of life, when you look at injuries and displacement that has been caused by this conflict, we prioritize the protection of civilians. Beginning with October 7th, uh, the, the people who were targeted and, and killed and injured by Hamas, a terrorist organization, as well as innocent Palestinian civilians that have paid a really high price in, in terms of deaths, injuries, and displacement. Our focus has always been and will continue to be the protection of civilians, calling for the respect of international humanitarian law, Really advocating consistently and repeatedly and strongly for a ceasefire an immediate ceasefire so that the conflict can stop so that international humanitarian workers and health workers can do their job throughout the Gaza Strip and 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 more aid to go in. I totally understand the frustrations I'm frustrated with the level of deaths and injuries
2: is it reasonable minister to be asked to stay out of a place of worship is that, is that- a reasonable response for members of parliament.
3: Look, I mean, I, I'm not too. I, you know, I people are frustrated and they'll make statements based on that frustration. I, I totally understand. What I want to sort of respond to to that is by saying, look, I'm frustrated as well, and and our government is frustrated with the level of deaths and injuries, and we're doing everything that we can, together with like-minded countries, to push for an immediate ceasefire and end to the to the conflict so that more aid can go in all the hostages can be released making sure that you know there is freedom of movement for humanitarian workers and health workers so that we can you know do what we can to help those who are injured i saw people who had been evacuated from gaza who were being treated in egypt uh, men women and children who had lost limbs who uh, were dealing with horrific injuries uh, you know and we know what's happening on the ground from uh, humanitarian worker reports showing that we're on the brink of mass starvation. We have to do everything that we can to prevent that, including looking at the feasibility of uh, Canada engaging in in the airdrop of food, medicine, and other supplies by air over Gaza. And, and we're in active discussions to, to enable us to do that. And that's precisely the conversations that that I've been having with the uh, that I've had with Jordanian officials in Amman, Jordan.
2: Thank you for your time today, minister. Thank you. Ahmed Hussein is the Minister of International Development. We spoke with him on Thursday. I'm Catherine Cullen and you're listening to The House from CBC Radio. Now, listen to this.
5: They're constantly moving. If you try to pick one up, they would no doubt slither in your hand and uh, slip out because they're, they're quite wet. And despite people's perception that they're gross, they're uh, actually quite beautiful creatures.
2: Those beautiful creatures are baby eels, and they're worth a ton of money. And that has led to rampant poaching and worse.
1: We've had violence, gunshots. A few years ago, we had a kidnapping uh, we have had person beat up with a pipe last year. Uh, all happening on people's property. in The, edge
2: the situation's gotten so bad, there. the fisheries minister said she can't ensure safety or sustainability this year. So in a letter last week, she said she intends to close the 2024 fishery before the season begins. Friday was the deadline for consultations. Some of the worst violence around the eel fishery has happened in conservative Rick Perkins riding in southern Nova Scotia. He describes poachers from across Canada and the United States coming to catch the baby eels so they can be shipped live overseas.
1: There's a massive market in China for it. You don't eat baby eels. You grow them through aquaculture into adult eels, and they do that in China at twice the rate of growth using hormones.
2: Baby eels are called elvers, and government officials say the elver fishery has become the most valuable by weight in Canada. A one kilogram bucket can sell for up to $5,000. So in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, poachers are cashing in.
1: People are poaching elvers, illegally fishing elvers. They show up at about midnight on your property because elvers go up the rivers at night in the high tide, you know, with headlights on their heads to attract the elvers. And uh, they're there all night and they're there in camouflage gear and in many instances they're armed. And Perkins says
2: this isn't just affecting the people who are out fishing legally. Residents, in his riding, are being threatened by these people illegally fishing on their property. And they're dealing with a lot of crap.
1: Every morning they have to clean up the mess on their property from food and clothes and everything that gets left behind from humankind overnight, uh, including used toilet paper and everything that goes with that. Uh, for months and months on end and are threatened. So they're fearful, and obviously the licensed DFO harvesters, the more than 1,000 families in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick who depend on this fishery for their living, are uh, frightened as well when DFO allows them on the river and they're facing very violent situations.
2: You said you and your wife received death threats over this. What happened?
1: Yeah, whether through social media or calls to uh, my constituency office, uh, things in the mail, all of that happened last year, uh, which was the first year that I was very uh, vocal. Last year, it was an exponential growth in the poaching from people from the United States and all over Canada on every single river in Nova Scotia in my riding. And uh, the complaints of not only the harvesters, but of the property owners was huge. And so I was very public about how DFO and other police authorities, including the RCMP, had to stop this crime and that they weren't doing their jobs. And uh, those pleas from constituents, in fact, uh, some of my constituents, the RCMP threatened to, to arrest them if they kept calling people to complain about people trespassing on their property what? which is ironic yeah it was crazy uh, it happened in the house uh, in hubbards it happened in a house uh, not far from where i live and so the local detachment said stop bothering us so i mean it was really out of control and as the member of parliament I had to speak out it and that uh, didn't endear me to those breaking the law
2: so i just want to be clear about this rick perkins You start speaking out about this and you start receiving, as you said, through mail, phone call, people who are saying, if you don't stop talking about this, your life is in jeopardy? Your wife's life is in jeopardy?
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, they said, we know where your wife lives, where she works. Uh, we'll, uh, We'll shut you up.
2: I'm sorry that you and your family have gone through that. This is a big issue, as you say. The minister has said that the violence writ large is so bad, she's inclined to shut down the fishery this year. You don't agree with that call?
1: Well, in fact, she said she's going to shut the fishery down. She didn't say she's inclined to. Her letter to the 11 license holders is, I'm not even going to let you on the river, thinking that somehow taking those who abide by the law off the rivers somehow discourages those who break the law from continuing to break the law. It's it's the definition of insanity to me. This was tried uh, in 2020, and the poaching continued at an even higher rate because DFO did not do any improvement or increase with the RCMP in enforcement. And the result was that when the fishery opened again in the spring of 2021, the poaching was even higher and there was more violence. Then in 2022 and 2023, DFO thought, well, instead of enforcing the law, what we'll do is we'll reduce the quota of the legal license holders and issue some new licenses to some other folks and maybe that'll stop it. But the poaching continued exponentially in growth to the point where uh, the estimates are that 100 metric tons of illegal elvers went through the Toronto airport last year. Now, to put that in perspective, the entire quota for the entire fishery in the entire season is only 9,960 kilograms. So you're talking about hundreds of times more in illegal product going out. At a product that, you know, when we had a controlled fishery sold for $5,000 a kilogram. So theoretically, all of that goes to China through Hong Kong. So theoretically, that's a half a billion dollars. Now, because the market is flooded by poaching, not even the poachers are getting that level of money anymore. Because, you know, supply and demand, the price has gone down because it's just the Wild West and... uh, Uh, Anyone with a net and a light on their head and a bucket can go catch these things.
2: So, Rick Perkins, the the argument from the minister, from government officials is the violence is out of control. The only way to identify um, who's doing wrong here is to cut off the legal activity. Obviously, you don't agree with that. So what would you do? to deal with what is obviously, as you've described, a violent and troubling situation right now. Just to start with the violence, what needs to happen?
1: Well, uh, they need to enforce the law and stop the crime. And you do that by picking a river at a time, uh, taking the full force of the police force that uh, DFO has, a full police force called Conservation and Protection, (CNP). You take the, all the resources you have in that, and you take all the resources with the RCMP, you arrest them all, and you seize their vehicles. And then next night... You pick another river and do the same thing. And soon enough, when everybody's losing their trucks, that'll, that'll send the message across to everyone else. It's going to be very bad this year. Now that it's a free for all and DFO has said in committee that they are not putting more assets into arresting people on the river. So guess what's going to happen? More poachers, more illegal activity and more lawlessness and more violence.
2: Okay, we're going to leave the conversation there. Rick Perkins, thank you for your time today. Thank you. We did ask the Nova Scotia RCMP for comment on what Rick Perkins said about the lack of enforcement. They told us, The RCMP does not have a role in enforcing the Fisheries Act. The RCMP responds to and investigates complaints of criminal activities that pose a threat to the safety of individuals or property. They also said they fully investigate any complaints of criminal activities they receive and encourage people to report any criminal activity to the police. So where does all of this leave the people who are legally making a living off this industry? Matt DeLong is a commercial elver fisher with Atlantic Elver Fishery. I started by asking him what it's like fishing for these tiny
5: eels. We're fishing all at night. So the, uh, the evenings can be quite calm and quite beautiful. And the fish, when they're moving upstream, are super interesting to watch at times. it's um, I mean, there's thousands, if not millions of them. And uh, they, they shimmer in the moonlight. Yeah, it can be quite, uh, quite beautiful at times.
2: We know that in the last few years, there has been this surge of illegal activity. What have you seen?
5: Well um the most noticeable thing that we've seen is uh the exponential increase in the last year of the number of uh uh illegal harvesters uh whereas in the past 5 years we may have seen two three extra people on on rivers on some nights so last year there was 30 uh, upwards of 50 people um other than ourselves on, on rivers it's unnerving to say the least. I mean, we're we're outside um, at night uh, next to moving water. Yeah, you know, I think a couple of years ago we were out uh, wading in the water at night. And it was minus fourteen outside. So to have the added pressure of other people who you don't know and you don't know their intention, you know they're not supposed to be there. That adds certainly adds another dynamic um, as well as to the incidents that have happened. Yeah, you, know, you know, there was a kidnapping three years ago where uh, vehicles boxed in another vehicle and illegal harvesters kidnapped um, another fisher
2: why would they why would someone get kidnapped in this situation
5: yeah uh, so they were looking for they were looking for money they're trying to get the fishers to take them to uh, their employer for money wow so whenever you know you're in the middle of the night whenever anybody else pulls up it's always uh, you kind of have to be on your toes
2: yeah I mean, you laugh a bit, but it's it sounds like scary stuff yep the the fisheries minister is talking about shutting down the season. What would that
5: mean for you well for for myself um we just moved to the area near our base of operations uh, a year ago, so I mean it's um pretty expensive to to move and build homes this <laughs> this time, so losing you know a big chunk of our our family income would be not great. Um, plus, to see the fishery uh, go from something that's been historically uh, very sustainable and uh, seemingly very well managed to being in chaos is disheartening, uh, and at the least. And, and then uh, my wife works in this community as a family doctor, and uh, not to be too light about it, but it, she could work anywhere. That could mean if we ever had to move for other kind of employment opportunities, then uh, be you know, close to a thousand people here without a primary healthcare worker. You know, so it's just there's not only implications for the for the industry and the fishery itself. It's there's implications for the communities and families of the fishers that work in the industry.
2: So at this point, do you have any hope for this season?
5: It's pretty low. Obviously, I, I'd like it to happen, um, but uh, it's pre- pretty low at this point.
2: Okay. Matt, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about this today.
5: Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for calling.
2: And there could be more consequences if, indeed, the government does order the fishery closed this year. Some of the people out harvesting elvers are Indigenous. The Supreme Court ruled 25 years ago that First Nations have a treaty right to hunt and fish in pursuit of a moderate livelihood. It's known as the Marshall decision. Though the federal government can limit those rights for specific reasons, like conservation. Michael McDonald is a Mi'kmaq lawyer and treaty fisheries manager for the Sabaganagatee First Nation, and he says the reasons for halting the fishery this year are not justified under the
6: law. Any closure itself is going to impact and be a breach of the Marshall decision, of course, right? The, The federal government can infringe our rights if it's for either conservation or for public safety. However, when you look at either the conservation components or even the public safety components, those will not nullify a right.
2: So the fact that the minister of fisheries is saying there has been a lot of violence, I am inclined because of that to shut down the elver fishery. What do you say to her?
6: Well, there's a number of issues that we have with that. First and foremost is like in 2020, you know, when our community experienced all kinds of violence and and hatred towards us from the commercial fishermen and there was a blockade, a number of large commercial vessels came in and blocked our fishers from commencing our moderate livelihood fisheries when it comes to lobster. And a number of our community members were assaulted. Our chief was actually assaulted. We had uh, two lobster pounds that were set on fire. We had another lobster pound where members were being held hostage by commercial fishers. We had a member that commercial fishers were shooting flares at. And a lot of this was done right in front of DFOs and the Coast Guard and RCMP, and they did nothing. They just sat back and watched it happen. But yet, the minister didn't shut down lobster fisheries, and this was far more violence that was seen, you know, in the lobster fisheries than ever seen on in the alber fisheries.
2: So, how do you make sense of the difference?
6: I don't. It doesn't make no sense, and that's what we asked the minister last week. Our community asked him, like, why wasn't the lobster fisheries shut down, and now you're going to shut down, you know, the alber fisheries based on a couple of incidences that occurred last year and three years prior. And what did the minister say? The minister just said that she would look into it, and that's it.
2: If the fishery is closed this year, what kind of impact does that have on your community?
6: So for the, for our community, it was like last year when we submitted our management plan to the Department of Fisheries. We did a... Um, you know, alver handling course for our members first. Any member that wanted to fish underneath our management plan had to first take the alver's handling course, which they did, and then a lot of them were got involved. It was beautiful. We had families all down on the river together, and you know, there was some spots there would be like twenty or thirty community members all fishing in the same spot. I mean, they didn't make a lot of money, you know, but they made it, you know, enough to get those little extras or pay those bills. They made a few thousand dollars, some of them, and a shutdown would, of course, kind of take that away from them, you know?
2: So what do you believe would be the best solution if it's not shutting down the fishery entirely this year?
6: Well, I had a solution that I provided to DFO, and I've been repeatedly telling them this since last summer, and I I suggested that we do a two-day shutdown per week this would allow for two days for Elvers to continue up the river, as well as um, I suggested that just get rid of fike nets, make fike nets illegal. Poachers are poaching fish because they want the easiest way out. They want the easiest method, right? And so with fike nets, like myself personally, I could pull a fike net out of my trunk, have it set up on that river and be back in my vehicle in two minutes. And then I can come back after the tide changes, jump out with some buckets, grab that net, pull it out of with it river, empty it into my buckets, set that net back up and throw my buckets in my vehicle and be out of there in less than four minutes. And so if you get rid of fyke nets, then anybody out there poaching is going to have to dip. And when you're dipping, you're stuck on the river for hours, more chances of uh, getting caught. And so it'd be easy for Department of Fisheries officers to regulate that fisheries by eliminating fyke nets.
2: Michael, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise and your perspective with us today. Thank you very much.
6: Thank you. I appreciate you having me.
2: And that brings us to the government's point of view. We reached out to the minister's office and they put us in touch with her parliamentary secretary. We spoke to Liberal MP Mike Kellaway on Wednesday. Now we're hearing about death threats, robberies, assault. Are you shocked by how bad this has gotten?
0: Uh, last year, to be honest with you, Catherine, um, being a Nova Scotian living here in Cape Breton, I was shocked by the level of verbal, physical violence, the level of illegal activity, and. This is why the minister last week put forward a letter to the license holders uh, the indigenous uh, license holders and non-indigenous to basically let them know where her head was in terms of the coming season and the importance of having consultations over the next week which will conclude on the 23rd and then she will make her decision accordingly but she's equally concerned about a couple of things the safety of the harvesters the safety of those in community because there's about 300 rivers in place play where elders are, Catherine in Nova Scotia, New Brunswick. Some of them are adjacent to people's cottages and homes. And last year we saw a level of violence that was 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 quite frankly scary. And of course then there is our our focus on a moderate livelihood and indigenous rights. And lastly, an important thing that we don't talk about a lot here is the sustainability of the resource and the conservation of the resource. So we're, we're we're focused on that now, and the, the, the member so, the, the minister will make her decision very very soon.
2: Okay, I just want to stay with these remarkable stories, as you said, scary stories of violence. Why haven't officials or police been able to stop it?
0: Well, to a large degree, I mean, let's go back to the, the landmass here. So you're talking about 300 rivers that in many cases are deep in the bush. And we have put more resources to the uh, the elder fishery than we did last year to the lobster fishery. And in, in some cases, people were caught, but the, the numbers were so large. And so, uh, so it's just uh, too
2: big a problem to stop. It's too big a problem?
0: No, it's not a too big a problem, but I think what we need is new tools, to be honest with you, Catherine. I mean, there's a couple of things. One is the harvesting, illegal harvesting of it, but also the exporting. And what we've been working over the last year, and it takes time and it's complicated, uh, and we're close, but not close enough for this season, is a broad suite of new regulatory changes and law changes to uh, the exportation to stem that because this product, this Elver, is being sold. Uh, It's being sold and then transported internationally. So we're looking at a broad regulatory change that not just focuses on DFO, Catherine, but focuses on Canada border security, justice, international trade. There's going to be a lot of spokes in that tire that are solutions. But they all have to be, in my opinion, be implemented at the same time to have the desired impact, which is to stem the tide of illegal activity, the illegal sale, the illegal catch of of Elver. To put it in perspective for your listeners, you know, you're looking at, say, your average uh, container of uh, peanut butter. Take that peanut butter out. It's a kilogram. $5,000 you can get on the black market with Elvers filled in that particular container of peanut butter. It's lucrative. And we need new tools and and a clear line of sight, too, in terms of uh, being able to implement them effectively in an integrated fashion.
2: Okay. I want to stay in this season where, as you said, it appears that the minister is poised to shut down the fishery this year. How would stopping legal fishing prevent illegal harvesting?
0: Well, it's a great question, right? So last year, when we closed the fishery, the other fishery in April, it did diminish those that were out there in the rivers. There were still people out there, though, Catherine, make no mistake about it.
2: Yeah, how, how do you know? I mean, it's all, it's all happening illegally. How do you know it diminished the... The amount of illegal activity?
0: Well, just by the, in terms of uh, CMP reconnaissance, less people uh, on the rivers. Now, there were still people on the rivers, though, uh, but it was considerably reduced, according to what DFO has been telling uh, us in the ministry. So, you were asking the question how does that diminish illegal activity? If she chooses to, to not have the season, then there is no gray zone, meaning that if you're in possession of Elver, if you're selling elver, if you're fishing elver, it's illegal, and it will provide that clarity to try to to write a problem that's been ongoing for some time. Uh, they did the same thing in, in, in Maine as well. That they, you know, if the minister decides to close the fishery before it begins, they did that a couple of times in Maine. And the purpose of that was to get the, the right tools in place to be able to effectively deal with the problem. But make no mistake about it, Catherine, this impacts those uh, lawful fishers, the men and women that work under those licenses for, for the license holders. Uh, it impacts economies. But we want to make sure that because the, like in Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, the, you know, the fishery is our livelihood. It's the biggest export that we have. But we need to ensure safety, security and conservation or there will be no resource. So you
2: are saying all fishing would then be illegal. But what about the First Nations who are in some cases saying
0: we have the treaty right to harvest these eels? And, and great question. So that's priority. It's a core priority of the government, as you know, and as your listeners know. Uh, we are consulting with First Nations right now, uh, Indigenous leaders, Indigenous license holders. Uh, I think one of the things from my experience here at Unamagi and Cape Breton and dealing with chiefs here, not to say that uh, chiefs are, are uniform uh, in terms of their thoughts on this, but I've often heard that the most important thing is the conservation of the resource and the safety of individuals fishing. Uh, I'm sure that will come out in conversation conversations. But this is a very nuanced, very complicated. And we'll be listening to those uh, consultations, including Indigenous leaders and Indigenous rights holders over the next uh, couple of days.
2: You talked about all of the things that need to happen in order to make the situation better. You know, uh, having border officials working in concert with the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, all of these things. Given that it sounds like this season is unlikely to happen, can you tell people that this will be fixed by next season?
0: I personally believe that the regulations that we want to put in place, that we will consult with license holders too, by the way, will greatly impact this in a positive way in terms of uh, ensuring there's a fishery, ensuring that it is safe, secure, and conservation is the key. But like the Maine example, uh, Maine has a suite of regulatory changes that they've made. They still have a certain percentage, I'm not sure what that is, of illegal uh, fishery. But uh, I believe if with these regulatory changes, working with license holders, working with indigenous license holders, indigenous leadership, we'll be in a better, much better place. And it it does anger me that we have to come to this potential decision because, again, the unlawful activities of some impact those that are doing uh, their, their best to secure economic security for their families and for their communities. But we need to make sure that it's here for the long run. And I believe that those regulatory changes, those changes to laws that are complicated, that just don't happen overnight, but once they're there, I think we'll be in a much better place than we are now, Catherine.
2: Okay, we're gonna have to leave it there. Thank you very much for your time today.
0: Thank you, Catherine.
2: Liberal MP Mike Calloway is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans. Before we go, last week we told you about negotiations between the Liberals and the NDP over Pharmacare. Friday, we learned that a deal has been struck to cover medication for diabetes and birth control. Here's NDP leader Jagmeet Singh talking to CBC Chief Political Correspondent Rosemary
5: Barton about the details. Diabetes and contraception, does that mean that any Canadian, whether they have insurance or not, will be able to access that drug free of charge from the federal government? Is that the idea?
7: Yes, it's very much like the the system that's actually been rolled out in BC, for example, for contraceptives. It covers a wide class of contraceptives, including... IUDs, prescription contraceptives, and the emergency contraceptives that people take, that's all covered. You go into a pharmacy with your prescription, and it is covered in BC. That is the same model of what we're looking to achieve across the country, single-payer, public, for contraceptives and for diabetes medication. So So, it'd cover a wide range of insulin and other medication that people need for diabetes.
5: So it's not like the dental care, where if you have insurance, you have to stick with your insurance. This is, everybody gets it, doesn't matter what your situation is.
7: Yeah, this is universal the way it should be for pharmacare, the way the experts have recommended. The countless commissions that were done, the Hoskins report, uh, what people have said is the best way for us to move forward is to make sure no one has to worry about the cost. You go into a pharmacy and your medication is covered. We're gonna get that done for diabetes and for, for contraception, that's going to be life-changing for a lot of people.
5: So let's talk about then what you've, what you've managed to achieve in terms of the legislation and sure. what the legislation has committed to. Because the Liberals have made it clear that A, they can't afford universal single-payer pharmacare, and B, they just don't want to do it because it's too pricey. So what, what have they agreed to in terms of next steps?
7: So, we have got uh, confirmation uh, in the legislation of language on single payer specifically, single payer universal public. We've got commitments to language specifically that reference the Canada Health Act. And the Canada Health Act is very important because the principles in the Canada Health Act are very much in line with a single payer universal. So, we've got that commitment in the legislation. And like you've mentioned, and like I've mentioned, beyond the actual legislation, we now have concrete commitments on two classes of drugs to be covered. Using a single payer model. So, we're showing that not only do we have the legislation, but we're actually getting it done so that people, young women that have to take uh, contraceptives for various reasons, that's no longer going to be a cost you have to worry about every Mm -hmm. month. That's Mm going to be covered. Uh, I know someone who worked at a clinic that would have lineups hours long for women that would show up to access contraceptives because it's so cost prohibitive for many people. That's a cost they're never going to have to worry about again because of the program that we fought for and we're going to deliver.
2: You can catch the full interview with Jagmeet Singh on Rosemary Barton Live. That's on Sunday at 10 a.m. Eastern on CBC News Network and CBC Gem and 11 a.m. Eastern on CBC Television. Okay. That is it for us. Our team on the House this week is Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and senior producer Jennifer Chevalier. Thank you also to Alison Dempster in Calgary. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for
4: listening.
0: For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.